It's good to see you all here, and we're excited to be continuing in our series working through this book of Acts for a few weeks into it. I would love to invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles, though, so we're looking at this together. We're in Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one from the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, you can also take that with you. Uh, you're remembering last week, if you're here, we talked about the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And it's pretty fantastic grand entry, if you remember, amongst uh, all the early believers where the Holy Spirit came down. And you remember, really, uh, the uh, experience was quite noteworthy. We talked about it quite a bit last week. And really, it was, in some degree, setting up this next section, which would I would suggest is the ultimate sermon of all time, the very first sermon ever preached in the early church. So excited as a pastor just to have an opportunity to teach that uh, with you this morning. Uh, but really, as a pastor, one of the things that you often do when you're preaching is you try to set up the topic and try to kind of think through what's a creative way to grab people's attention. But uh, Peter didn't have to do that because the, he already had the, the, the flaming tongues, he had the sound of wind behind him, he had the bilingual peasants, he had, I mean, he had the whole thing going for him, and now he chooses to speak to this audience, the audience of devout Jews from that time that had gathered, you remember why they gathered, to see what in the world is going on here as the Holy Spirit came upon the early believers. Well, as we're going through this text, I was like, you know what, usually I, I kind of break down sections of Scripture. I'll read a little bit, we'll talk about it, we'll read a little bit. And I was like, you know what, that doesn't do this one justice. This is one of those sermons that I believe needs to be read from start to finish. But then I was thinking, man, they had this such an awesome grand entrance, and uh, if this is going to be read, it should be read in style. So I asked Simone Maddox, uh, who has the best reading voice I'd propose in our church, uh, to read this text to us. She recorded it in one shot on her, uh, on her iPhone. We added some uh, sound to it in the background. But we're going to listen to this. But here's the thing, is I want you to follow along because it's a pretty good-sized section of Scripture. So you can read along with her. We're starting in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. So we're reading this. And while you're reading it, Look for kind of the big idea of what we're looking at this morning. We're looking for claims about Jesus Christ. Let's see how many you can identify to the soothing sound of Simone Maddox. Here we go. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, we're trying to introduce a new Siri app to replace Siri's voice with Simone's, and so uh, uh, just kidding on that, but what a, a beautiful rendition, and I know that's a lot to try to soak in, and so we're going to take some time to, to talk through that this morning, but you may have noticed there's quite a few claims about Jesus Christ, and if you think about it, this if there was ever an audience that would have benefited to debating the truth of some of the claims. Think of some of the things that are said, this Jesus you crucified and killed. This Jesus whom you crucified. If you're in the audience, if there's ever a time where you're going to speak up if something wasn't accurate, that would be the time in the place to do it. When someone claims that you've literally murdered someone, that's a time to maybe pipe up if something wasn't accurate. And I love that we'll see throughout this text, all these claims that he makes about Jesus Christ can't be refuted because why? They knew it was true. 
They knew it was true. And I, I was wondering, like, why, why is it? Why didn't they speak up? And it maybe had something to do with the guy that's talking literally just had a fire above his head and the sound of wind behind him. But, but probably it's more of what we see even in our own lives, that there's these times where you act, you do something in a, in a moment of emotion, and then a little bit later, you reflect back on that, and you're like, I was dead wrong. So anybody ever do that? Any married couples ever do, do that? I've heard of people doing that sometimes. Uh, I, I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you think about that. I think that's exactly what transpired here. They realized as he was speaking, oh, man, started connecting the dots. They're like, man, we, we really blew it. Look at their words in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, And the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Isn't that the million-dollar question still today? How do we respond to our guilt? Well, we're going to get to that section of of Scripture, but I think it's first important for us to start with a word of prayer, and then we're going to break down these different claims about Jesus Christ. What shall we do, they asked. God, we ask that you teach us through this text, God, that for the person that's in here that is, has embraced Jesus Christ, this might be a, a message of, of hope and affirmation and solidifying their understanding of, of God, solidifying their understanding of Jesus Christ, who he was, who he is, how he relates to our life. And for the person that's here that maybe has never embraced Jesus as Lord, they might be able to start to connect the dots in the same way that this audience did Back then, God, we ask that you'd speak to us, that you'd be great, I'd be small. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So looking at verse 14, he starts right out of the gates. This is Peter talking. And I, I love the first thing is because you see the boldness. It says that he lifted up his voice and addressed them. I don't know if there's anybody here that's a little bit intimidated with public speaking. Anybody here confess that they don't really like the public speaking thing? I get nervous too. You guys are kind of intimidating to talk to. Now imagine standing up in front of, you know at the end that 3,000 come to Christ. So at least it's 3,000 plus people that he stands up and addresses with confidence and starts telling them about the Jesus that they killed. This is a new and improved Peter, I would suggest. Remember, he was the same guy that denied Christ three times, the same guy that was intimidated by a teenage girl. All of a sudden, this is Peter version X, right? For all you Apple uh, lovers, you might appreciate that. Everybody's staring at me blankly, but he had a new operating system. Like now he's no longer self-confident. He's God-confident, and he has to proclaim the truth, and he's proclaiming it to a group that would have to admit that they were wrong in order to embrace this truth. So the first thing that you notice he does is he kind of starts by dispelling. Remember last week what some of the people that saw all of these miraculous things happening, they're like, oh, they must have been just drunk. They must have had too much to drink. Remember that was one of the suggestions or one of the foolish things proposed? Well, he starts just by uh, uh, addressing the foolishness of that silly suggestion. He says, they're, they're not drunk by 9 a.m. Come on, guys, it's morning time. There's nobody that's been drinking right out of the gates here. So he, he dispels that, but I, I do love that he doesn't waste a lot of time with arguing that because uh, really we can learn from that. So often there's these diversions that move us away from things that are important. 
and you think about even conversations you've had with somebody about spiritual things, and they come up with the most crazy diversions, but look what Peter does. It's something for us believers to glean from. He moves the conversation back to Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we want to do as well? Move the conversation back to Jesus Christ. And he starts to point out all these amazing claims about Jesus. And you can see them as we walk through it in the text. I identified eight of them. Maybe you could pull out even more. The first thing that he points to right out of the gates is how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He points to this, this is a, remember, this is a, a group of devout Jews. They're there for Pentecost, they're there for this holiday. So they're like the serious ones that would really know God's word. And they really hung on the words of, of prophecy because they're waiting for their uh, blessed Messiah to finally come. And he starts to point out the fact that Jesus fulfilled all these different prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. So the first thing he points to is prophecies by Joel that they'd be familiar with. And he, that in that prophecy, it pointed that exactly what Joel had prophesied, that there would be the pouring out of the Spirit on people of all ages and social status, no spiritual elite any longer. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. So he makes that connection, connecting the dot between the, what had been said in the old and making sense out of it. Now, some of Joel's prophecies had been fulfilled with the Jesus' first coming. Some will ultimately be fulfilled with Jesus' second coming. Uh, so there's some debate when he's talking about the sky. Maybe that was the fact. Do you remember when Jesus died? What happened to the sky? Anybody remember what happened? It went completely black. It was literally mid, in daylight turned to darkness. And so probably some of them still talking about that, the reason they're standing there with no debate. So that's one prophecy he points to. He points a little bit later in the sermon, verse 31, he talks about someone else they really held in high regard, King David. He refers to another prophecy that he had made about the Messiah. So at two different times, they re he refers to things that were spoken about what Jesus would do. Verse 31, he's referring to David. He said, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his, his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. In simple terms, the psalm speaks of a resurrection, and since David wasn't resurrected, he was referring to the Messiah to come. So he's helping him connect the dots, make sense out of this. Wait a second, that, that's what that was talking about. Oh, that's what that was talking about. So awesome if you think about one of the more affirming things to our faith is the existence of prophecy. Literally, all the different things that were spoken about Jesus Christ. Imagine with me for a moment, what year did uh, Columbus arrive in America? This is a little school test. 1492, Columbus. Nice, nice. Somebody paid attention in fifth grade. That's great. So in 1492, imagine if upon stepping first foot in America, Columbus said, you know what? In 525 years, there's going to be a man by the name of Donald Trump from New York that's going to lead this great nation. Would it not be impressive upon election day when Donald Trump from New York became the president? You, you think I'm about to get political. I'm not. Uh, but, but here, the impressive part, I'm not talking about Trump. The impressive part is the fact that there's predictions as specific about when Jesus would be born, 
what his name, it's kind of hard to fake where you're born, right? Like, uh, like that's not something you could pretend. The, one of the validating factors of why we believe what we believe is because there's over 25, 2,500 different prophecies in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled in the New Testament, many about Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing in that he starts with out of the gates, one of the more seal-proof cases pointing to Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing he points to. The next thing, he points to another thing that they couldn't debate, Jesus' miracles. Verse 22, he says, he refers to the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, Jesus, in your midst. This was, again, something that they couldn't debate. Imagine in that group that we know is at least more than 3,000, imagine many of them had either personally experienced God's healing through Jesus Christ, or they had witnessed it. I wonder if there's somebody in the crowd there that's like, yeah, my, my uncle Tony, he got fixed, or my, my cousin Frank. I don't know why I'm using Italian uh, references, but, uh, but, but here's the, the, the in, the, in the, the place there, you, you imagine they couldn't debate it because the expanse of Jesus' healing ministry was too broad and too wide. They can't argue with when you have somebody you know that's been healed. I think sometimes we don't realize even the scope of Jesus' healing ministry ourselves. I want to point to a couple passages. The first one here in Matthew 9, 35 says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities, all the cities, and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Can you imagine if somebody showed up and we'll just say Agora Hills and literally was healing every disease, every sickness? Can you imagine how that would spread, how quickly that would become known to the, the world around? It wouldn't be something that you could debate of, oh, he just healed everybody with cancer. He just healed everybody with Alzheimer's. He just healed everybody. Like, can you imagine going down the list and he's healing everybody that comes across his path? Matthew 15, 30 says the same thing. It says, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet and he healed them. Literally massive crowds bringing all of their sick Imagine that today. And they're even amplified. Did you know this, that during Jesus' time when he was on earth, the average, average Jewish, Jewish person had a lifespan between 30 and 35 years? Isn't that interesting? So for us, if we think disease is a rampant part of our community and our relationships, imagine that day and age, what that would have been like, where he's healing everybody that he crosses a path with or the majority I would suggest. So here, again, making cases about th this Jesus character that they're like, uh, we can't really argue with that. As much as we want to defend ourselves because you're accusing me of murdering him, we can't really debate because it's a seal-proof, undisputed truth done in their midst. Continues, verse 23, other things that he points to. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
He's basically pointing there to the fact that Jesus was fulfilling a plan that was already in place, something that was a foreknowledge. It was known. It was, it was, it was laid out. To me, this is one of the more exciting ones because you can look at the account of Jesus' death and, 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 and execution, and you, you see that, and you're just like, man, there's so many points that seem like he was completely out of control. I don't know if you've ever watched it, The Passion of the Christ, that movie, but I remember one of the scenes that really stuck in my mind was the scene where they're marching him down that city street and people are spitting at him, mocking him. And there's something about that scene that I'm just like, there's something in me that's saying, this has to stop. Like this, this is ludicrous. Why does it keep going on? Somebody do something to stop this. But we're reminded here that that was all part of God's master plan. It wasn't like Jesus was like, oh man, I, they caught me, I'm stuck, what do I do? Like, No, literally, he willingly marched to the cross at the hands of lawless men. It's easy for us to look at terms like lawless men and think like, yeah, there, there are some really bad people back then, but who actually qualifies as lawless men? If you think about it, a lawless person is any breaker of the law, anyone absent of the law. Is there any lawbreakers in here? Anybody that's literally, if, if you hold up the Ten Commandments, if, we, if that's just our simple standard, anybody break any of those? Have any of you ever elevated something as a priority other than God at any point in your life? Has anyone ever literally taken something that doesn't belong to you? Has anyone ever committed adultery, whether physically or mentally, looking at someone else lustfully in their mind? How about, how about this one, if you've snuck past all those? How about coveting? Have you ever looked at something that somebody else had and said to yourself, oh man, man I wish that was mine. I really wish that. As I, Literally, here's the confession time. I'm in my, in my office, I'm jotting down these ideas about laws breaking, and someone pulls up in this sweet new Audi SUV right outside of my window, and I'm like, man, our car sure is getting up there in miles. It would be, would be nice to have that. Man, I wish I, you know, like, does anybody else do that? Like, here, the question isn't whether or not we're lawless. It's my question would be, how many laws have we broken in the last hour, Right? So, so that's maybe more of the debate that's relevant for us. And here he describes that as what put Jesus Christ on the cross. Why he hung there? Because the good news for us is because Jesus loved lawless men. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we had figured out the law and gotten perfect. He said, you know, I came, this plan, this foreknowledge, all this was yet on the, at the hands of lawless men, God orchestrating this perfectly. I love that God can even use our broken decisions and the lawless acts of men to still accomplish his will. Thankfully, we see that even present day today. So he points to this fact, all being part of his known plan and perfect purpose. So he fulfills God's plan. The one, ne- next one there, probably the most compelling argument for our faith through verses 23, nine different verses, verses 23 through 32 to talk about this. The fact that he died and rose again. This is one of the cornerstones of our faith, faith, and it's one of the uniquenesses to us versus any other world, rela- world religion because we have something that we claim that's testable, 
that, that's, that stood against the test of time and scrutiny. I think it's interesting uh, uh, amongst all of the Jewish literature that's been accumulated uh, apart from Scripture, there's nothing that's been found that debates that Jesus Christ came back to life. And in this audience, that it would have been very beneficial for someone to have something to say, no, he, he didn't come back to life, they stood silent. They couldn't debate that. Because even the audience that had literally put him to death, it wasn't like Jesus showed up to like one person and like a vision in the, in the night. Literally, Scripture points to even at certain times appearing to over 500 people at once. This wasn't a secret mission that Jesus was on. It's one of the things that we, uh, the bedrock of our faith, and that's why verse 32, look there in your text, it says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. I don't know if he's saying all as in all the, the uh, original believers, the 120 that were there, or whether he's saying that of the masses that had gathered to get questions answered. Either way, God had revealed himself through Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. This wasn't something up for debate. It's only modern day debate that's happened, not present day for those that had literally witnessed it with their own eyes. This was something that Jesus had promised uh, literally to his audience. It was something that Paul points to as a, one of the authenticating pieces of who Jesus Christ was. It's not something you can do independent of being God in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, Jesus' resurrection displays his victory over sin and death. He was the only one, God in the flesh, qualified to be a sacrifice that could be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It couldn't just be any Joe Schmo dying on a cross because there's been plenty of those over the years. Perfect God coming down, living the perfect life, and then dying as a sacrifice for us. Something he spoke about, Jesus told when he was asked by the religious leaders at that time, they said, show us a sign to validate your claims about who you are. Show us something. Show us some proof, in other words. What did Jesus say to them? He said to them, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and in three days I will raise it up. Told the disciples the same thing. This it is written. Our Lord replied to the disciples that the Christ should suffer and rise again on the third day. Then exactly, he did exactly that. He did exactly that. He did what he had promised, and that was the validation of him being, wait a second, is, is this the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Yes, it is. So he's helping them connect the dots. And I love verse 24. Look in your Bible there. It says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Love that. Underline the words not possible. Impossible for death to hold down Almighty God. The, the creator of life, the, the resurrection and the life couldn't be held down. Another display of him being who he claims to be, opposing God in this, is futile. So he was died and rose again, but then didn't remain dead. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. This was something that was predicted by David and literally played out. Many of them, I imagine, in that group had heard about Jesus' ascension. They had, some had even witnessed it. They're like, whoa, I can't really 
debate that either. He has been exalted. So I, I, I think about another validation of Jesus Christ. I have mixed feelings, if I'm honest. I have mixed feelings. I don't know if anybody has ever thought through this, but mixed feelings about, uh, cr- about crosses, about crucifixes, and, and different things. We, we as a culture, I, I understand as I'm standing literally in front of a, a cross there, I understand the value of that for remembering the sacrifice that was paid for us, right? Important. But the mixed feeling part is, I don't want us to picture our Messiah as a beaten, bruised, dead Savior. He's literally raised from the dead, elevated to being at the right hand of God the Father. I don't know what the image is to help that sink into our psyche, but that's the reality that he points to. We're not serving a dead Lord. We're serving a risen, reigning Savior who's at the right hand of God the Father. Amen? Uh, we can get Pentecostal there for a moment, uh, the, uh, since we're talking about the Pentecost, right? Um, okay, so, uh, been exalted. He gave, not only was exalted, but also gave the Holy Spirit. You see it right there in the same section. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So again, connecting the dots. What had they just seen and heard? They had just seen the, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. He came with like, like the sound of what? Wind. And it was like a, a flames over the, the people receiving its heads. He's like, he's like, this is what just happened. You literally just saw this with your very own eyes. You experienced it yourself. He's connecting the dots. And for the Jewish listener that was there, this was great news. They longed for the Spirit to not just be one that, that comes on particular leaders. They, they longed for His presence with all of them. This was good news that was being presented. So again, connecting the dots, that's where the Holy Spirit was coming. That's where the boldness that Peter was able to preach with was coming with. And really the conclusion, verse 36, as we get close to wrapping up here, he brings this to full conclusion. If all of these things are true about this Jesus whom you crucified, look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, important words, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? So all this points to the fact that, that this Jesus whom they had crucified was both Lord and literally the, the, the word that is used there the, is the same word used Christ used for the word Messiah. So Lord pointing to his deity, the one reigning over all. That's the, that's the thing, if you remember, that's what had gotten Jesus into trouble. That's what made him shout crucify him. All of a sudden, as they connect the dots, they're like, wait a second. Maybe he was Lord and our long-awaited Messiah. They started to piece this together. And you see, even from their response, that that guilt started to set in. What in the world have we done? Our long-awaited Messiah, we've turned over to our worst possible enemies. We've turned over to Rome to crucify him. It's one thing to hear secondhand that something had happened terrible to him. It's another thing when you're like, Wait a second, we did that. The, the guilt sets in and they literally, the only thing they can s- respond to it isn't a debate notice you see in the text. They ask that simple question, brothers, what shall we do? 
Anybody else felt so guilty about something before and you're like, I can't debate this. I'm guilty as charged. The only question I can ask is, what do I do now? How, how do we move forward? Is there, is there any hope for a failure like me? And isn't that the same question still a couple thousand years later? What do I do in response to my guilt? What do I do in response to my own sin? And I love this. And this is the last thing that we point to out of the different truths about Jesus is that this same Jesus also offers forgiveness of sin. See it right there for yourself. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, he didn't leave them hanging. He said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, responding to it. The world makes all kinds of suggestions on how we respond to our guilt. Maybe you need to work harder, or do more good stuff, but Romans shoots that plan down with the whole, all over the place. There's no one righteous, not even one. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But the one simple solution is by embracing what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Repent and be baptized. Repent, that idea of coming to the conclusion, I've blown it, acknowledging that before God. You've all had these repent moments, I hope, in your life, even in relationships. Same ideas with our relationship with God. God, I was wrong. I'm turning from that. I baptize. The baptize, what I love is an outward expression of an inward decision. So they are embracing Jesus Christ. They embrace him for who he is, and then they outwardly express it. Romans 10.9 points to the same idea that we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That doesn't seem to leave any room for any secret agent Christians. No, and any, he, he says, no, I, I want you to literally profess that. One of the things that we've done as a church in the last couple of years is we've introduced on certain times when the text points to it, opportunities for people to do exactly that. For people to literally express saying, I embrace Jesus as Lord. I accept that. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I'm going to carve out a couple moments here at the end of the service. I feel like it wouldn't be doing this very first sermon justice without having the opportunity for anyone that's in this room to not make that decision. Look what he says in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In other words, this invitation is open for everyone, every lawless man, every lawless woman to literally turn over your hope and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. So this is what we're going to do. I'm just going to be quiet for a few moments here, and I want to give you time to reflect. If you've already made this decision, this is a good time to pray for others in the room that maybe haven't, and also a good time for you to maybe celebrate that your truth, that your faith is founded in truth. But for those of you that never have made that decision, here's the, the response option that I'm going to suggest this morning. If you've never made that decision to literally stand up and use these simple two words, I'm in. I'm in. I accept what Jesus did. I, I embrace that free gift. I, I, I acknowledge my sin. I, I repent from it. And I turn my life over to Jesus Christ. I'm in. Those two simple words. I'm going to be quiet while we reflect on that. I'm in. Praise God. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. Praise God.
Anyone else in this room that's never made that choice? You're in. Praise God. It's awesome. Once you start weighing the claims of Jesus Christ and kind of connecting the dots, it's kind of, it's one of those things that's kind of, it's hard to debate when his own contemporaries, the own people that have witnessed his life are like, we can't say anything, then I'm in, uh, we're, we're in. And I, I love that that's exactly what happens. Peter pushes them to make a decision. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Think about that. 3,000 people that acknowledged, man, I, we, we were wrong. We were wrong. It's not just that they didn't debate him. They literally embraced him as Lord and Savior. There's a certain sense of urgency with our days. Uh, uh, if you're watching the news, there's a sense that, man, that, that you, you just don't know what you have left. I, I just wanted to present this in a couple more moments. If you've never made that decision, will you stand and say, I'm in, in this moment? God, we come to you right now and just praise you for our brothers and sisters even here in the front that are making the choice this morning to embrace you as Lord and Savior. It's such an awesome gift that they're saying yes to. Literally, what your word teaches is an eternity-redirecting choice. God, we praise you for that as we literally surrender our will, our human efforts at trying to please you, our human efforts at trying to reach up to you through our good works or efforts, when we let go of that, the freedom that comes from saying, I can't do it, I can't fix me, and embracing the work that you did for us, God. We praise you for that fact. I pray that even for those that are listening this morning that have made that decision already, this might even up the confidence that they have in the gospel message. This might up the boldness that they have like Peter to proclaim you in their circles of influence, God. We raise our white flags. We surrender, God, because you are the only one that can solve the human predicament. We praise you for that. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Love has come. Love has won. That's good news, right? Let's live in the joy of that reality that there's not a faith that we've put in that's going to crumble under the scrutiny of different audiences. This is one that stood the test of even the current audience of that time. Praise God for that. Have a wonderful Sunday in the Lord. God bless you.